0: Well, good morning again. I had one more uh, special announcement that I did not get to during announcements, and this is something that's very, very cool. Um, our good friends Steve and Tricia Shetzel are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary there in the back there, and so. <laughs> they got married at 10 years old, and so they're just really, um. No, it's just awesome. Steve. Steve and Tricia were here at this church before I got here. And they're, they're one of the founding fathers and mothers, is that how you say I guess Jan and Dick are and a few others, but uh, congratulations on that. Well, the time I study this morning is the purpose of the king. And we're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stuart will get one right to your seat. But I had forgotten that normally the first Sunday of every Month we do communion. Well, I had my study all done, so we don't have time because I want to share some things at the end of the study that's so going to take up our time, and so I had to make a change. And so I thought, well, I might as well make a change to my title as well. So I've retitled my study "Time to Make a Change." And so <laughs> hey, it works. So Matthew chapter four. We'll do communion next week, by the way. So if you came here expecting, we'll do that next week. But Matthew chapter four. Starting in verse 12, let's read the text. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, And those who were demon-possessed epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity for us to gather together, Lord, as believers, to, to open up your word. And knowing, Lord, you are present, you are among us, Lord, and your spirit is here to teach us from your word. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, as we dig into your Word, that we are sensitive to the things that your Spirit has to say to us, Lord, that we would seek to apply them to our lives, Lord, and, and uh, Lord, we seek to, to glorify you this morning. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart to you, they're not born again yet, Lord, would you especially touch their heart, that they would see their need for you and come to faith in your Son this morning. So we thank you for this time, Lord, we give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, back in 1870, the Methodists were having their annual conference in Indiana, and the presiding bishop, a man by the name of Bishop Wright, was asking for an interpretation of of current events in the world in 1870. Well, the president of the college where the conference was being held raised his hand and said, I would like to say something. So he stood up and said this, I think we're living in a very exciting age. I believe we're coming into a time where we will see wonderful inventions and things happening. I believe that we will, we will even be able to fly through the air as birds. Well, Bishop Wright, visibly disturbed by this scientifically based comment, responded by saying, This is heresy this is blasphemy. I read in my Bible that flight is reserved specifically for the angels. We will not have such talk at this in this convention. And then Bishop Wright went home to his two sons, Orville and Wilbur. <laughs> Just a reminder to us that things change. In the same way things we're about to read in our text, there's a change taking place. The ministry of Jesus was about to begin, and it would be radical. It would be exciting, unheard of. Now remember, the gospel of Matthew, the theme of the gospel of Matthew is, is Jesus as is king. And so far, Matthew has identified Jesus as king by pointing out that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Chapter 1. That he comes from the royal line of David. That he was identified as a king by the wise men and and the gifts they've given to him. And then by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the the sins of the world. And finally by being tested under the fire by the devil. We saw that last week. All these proclaim to the fact that Jesus is king. Well now we come to the end of chapter 4 and it marks the main division of the gospel. First was a proclamation of the king, now we see the purpose of the king. Jesus calling people to make a change in their lives. And so this morning we're going to look at four things. It's an exciting section of scripture. We're going to see four things if you're taking notes. The place, the message, the agents, and the results. Let's start with the place first, uh, number one. Let's look at verse 12. We read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed... To Galilee. So at this point, we read in verse 12 that John the Baptist, he's been arrested. He's in in prison. And there's a reason for that. To say that John was a, a great man is an understatement. He had a godly character, a man that stayed the course throughout his life. He was a man that when he spoke, he spoke the pure biblical truth. And because John spoke the truth, it exposed the darkness of the political leaders, especially in a man by the name of Herod Antipas. You see, this Herod had taken a woman named Herodias as his wife. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting married. But what Herod did was take this woman to be his wife while she was still married to his brother. Okay, that's kind of wrong. He seduced her on a trip to Rome. History tells us that. But it gets even worse. Herodias, who was his brother's wife, was also the daughter of Herod's half-brother, making her his niece. I mean, this would make a great episode of the Jerry Springer Show. Kings who marry their sisters-in-law who actually are their nieces. It was a twisted situation. And so it was John the Baptist who got in his face and said, Man, this is off the wall, Herod. This is wicked. This is sin. You need to turn from that. Now, no one spoke to Herod that way. I'm sure if John had some PR guy wanting to push his ministry forward, they would have said, "John, you need to settle it down a little bit, tone down your, your, your talk a little bit, be careful. This is the king you're talking to. He has the power to, uh, you know, execute you. Besides that, this king could help you get ahead in your career, it could help you get ahead in your ministry. Don't be so blunt with them, you know." And John would have none of it, not at all. John was not a respecter of person. He told it like it was. And as far as he's concerned, you could be a king, a religious leader a nobody, but he felt everyone would stand before God and be held accountable for their actions. And so he's telling Herod the truth. But I think he really sincerely cared about Herod's soul, and he wanted him to make that change. But what is interesting about all of this is that Herod Antipas actually admired John. He kept him around for a while. Maybe he saw something in him that inspired him. But even so, he was unwilling to change He didn't fully embrace John's message. He wanted to do his own thing even though he knew what John was saying was right. Man, doesn't that happen today? You see, people, they they hear the truth, but because they love their sin, they ignore it, which can be a very dangerous place to be in. For Herod, we know that he refused to do what was right, and from there it just got worse and worse, this downward spiral in this man's life. So very important that we respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and to our consciences. God has given us that conscience for a reason. It's a, it's a good thing. And if we, you know, and, and we shouldn't defy it. If we do, then it ends up crippling us in regards to, to business and, and friendships and, and relationships, everything. You know, if we're not led by the Spirit and listen to our conscience, it can, it can get us in a, in a big mess. And that's what happened with Herod Antipas after John's death as his life slowly deteriorated. And this Kind of brings us back to our first point, and that's the place where Jesus began his public ministry. You see, the place where Jesus was going was in Herod's backyard, so to speak. It's like Herod was getting a second chance, but he doesn't seize it. See, Israel at that time was divided into three parts. You have Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. I threw a map up there on the screen to kind of show you what we're talking about. Jesus departs from, from for Galilee from Nazareth, we read in verse 13. And that's at the, the top of the screen. It says, And leaving Nazareth, in verse 13, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Capernaum, as you can see, is in the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. On the southwest of the Sea of Galilee was the headquarters of Herod Antipas. And so it could be said that though Herod had John arrested, he liked him, he kind of listened to him got himself in a bad situation and had John murdered. But now he's got the second chance with Jesus in his own backyard. But he refused. The second chance he refused and now he's going further and further down. And that's what sin will do to you. As you refuse to change, as you refuse to the the conviction of the Holy Spirit, your heart gets harder and harder and it's a downward spiral. Herod's conscience grew more callous until he completely ignored it and he just got worse and worse. And you know the rest of the story. He beheaded John at a a drunken party. This guy got so paranoid that he even thought that Jesus was John raised from the dead. And that just goes to show us that the quickest road to being neurotic is to resist the Holy Spirit's conviction and ignore your conscience. This guy was freaked out by Jesus. In fact, he wanted to have Jesus killed even before the cross. In Luke chapter 13, we're told that some Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And I love Jesus' response. He said to them, go tell that fox, that's not in a good way, good looking fox, that that, that sly guy, behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. In other words, he has no control over my life, he says, I'm in control. Now this is where this all ties together. Remember when Jesus was, was arrested in Jerusalem? Where was he taken first? Well, he was first taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, then he's taken to a Gentile, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate says, where are you from? Galilee? Well, then, then I don't want to deal with you. So he sends him back up to Galilee to no other than Herod Antipas. So what you have is Herod Antipas, who had John arrested and killed now, has one more opportunity, three years later, in the final moments of his life, for, for, for him to come to Jesus. But this guy's conscience is so seared by this point, so polluted, that he basically asked Jesus to entertain him. Hey, you know, do some miracle. I've heard about you, Rabbi. And Jesus, he wasn't about to respond. He doesn't say a word to him. And so Herod Antipas sends him back in, in, to Pilate and the rest of his history. Now, Paul tells us that in the last days, and, and I think we're seeing that today, he tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. I mean, they're, they're seared. They're no longer, the things don't bother them anymore. They do all sorts of evil things but no big deal. Paul goes on to tell us in Ephesians 4.18, it's because of the blindness of their heart who, being past feeling, have given themselves, given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, being past feeling. They don't feel anything. They don't feel guilt anymore. They don't the conscience are seared. See, one who who continues to reject the Holy Spirit, their conscience becomes past feeling. They, they don't feel anything. It's kind of like Hansen's disease. It's commonly known as leprosy, but but you know, little people know that leprosy does not cause decay or deformity to the body as some think. Ulceration, decay, and deformity comes because the body cannot feel. And it's the same thing with sin. Sin desensitizes man's conscience to the point where it destroys the built-in mechanism that God has given us to warn against sin. And we need to pray. Lord, help me to be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that my conscience doesn't become seared, uh, even in the small areas of our lives as believers. Now, another interesting fact about the place where Jesus chose to base his earthly ministry is that Matthew tells us that this is fulfillment of prophecy. See, Matthew is constantly tracing the Old Testament prophecies back into this New Testament gospel, connecting the the dots with Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 13 again, on into verses 14 through 16. We read, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. I love this. This is a prophecy taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. That's what Matthew is quoting here. Let me read Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 in the New Living Translation. I like the way it reads. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali will soon be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, a light that will shine on all who live in the land where death casts its shadow. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 tells us of Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, this is just not a prophecy of a geographical sense being fulfilled, as with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But this, this is a prophecy uh, of being fulfilled according to a principle. So that when God visits his people for redemption, he comes to where the darkness is the greatest. Capernaum was in the deep, the, the, the despised region of the country. It was a portion of the country that has been overrun more than any other, other by foreign uh, invaders. Capernaum was known as the region of the shadow of death. How would you like to live there? Where do you live? I live in the region of the shadow of death. Want to come over? No, thank you. Consequent, consequently, there were, there were mixed marriages there and, and a great deal of Gentile influence. You see, the cool Jews, the ones who, who thought they had it all together, they went to Jerusalem. You know? But Jesus said, no, I'm going to Capernaum. I'm going where the outcasts are. I'm going where the people who are looked down upon are. That's where I'll be. So should we be surprised or shocked that Jesus ministers to those with the greatest need? Jesus still comes to those who feel unworthy. Jesus still comes to those that that feel attacked, that are are in the dark. You know, we had our our Friday Night Go team this past uh, Friday night, and it was just amazing. It's our opportunity to go downtown to our Capernaum, you know, and and share the gospel during the art walk. And one thing about downtown, there's a lot of folks that will never take a, a, a step in a church. And so we come to them, and you know we're just it's just as we we're, we're, we're fishermen. We just throw out the line, and and we throw out the gospel, and share the love of Jesus, and and see what happens. Praise God, we had one person receive Christ that evening. Just awesome. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand. Two two people. Great. So there's two people. I was just involved in the one. So two people came to Christ that evening. That that that's awesome. The one I was involved with, you know, we were sharing with, with one person and Calvin was, was sharing with this one, one gal and, and sharing with her and sharing with her and, and, and he kind of pulled me over and said, hey, Tom, this girl, you need to meet this girl, you need to pray with her. She wants to give her life to Christ. And I said, all right, all right, all right." And so I'm talking and then I come over again and... and, and Sure enough, I mean, Calvin had shared with her, and, and she was ready to give her life to the Lord. And said so, so let's pray, and, and and we prayed right there, and and, and it was awesome. And, and the amazing thing is is to to witness just the guilt and the shame of a person since suddenly it, it it disappears. I just it was a physical transformation. I I saw it on Friday night where where this gal, I mean, did you see that? All of a sudden there was just joy in her eyes, and going wow. And she, and her words were. I gotta go back to my, my roommate and tell her what just happened here. I gotta tell her what God has done in my life. That's, this, that's awesome. So I told Calvin, I said, next time you need to just, you know, close the deal. You, you, you can pray with her yourself, but you know, I said, man, you're, you're efficient. I'm just the guy bringing the net, you know, help, you, help you get in the boat, you know, but, but, uh, just you go ahead and, and, reel her all on in, you know. actually." God does all that work. We're just the tools. We're just, you know do what He does. But it was it was very very cool. Just like I said, just to see that transformation in a person's life. It was like, wow. And that's because Jesus said this of Himself in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And it's like just the light turned on in their face. Witnessed it downtown in our Capernaum. So this is where Jesus began his ministry. This is where the first Christians came from, so this is the place. Now, this brings us to our second point, the message. And here's what's amazing about our second point. Jesus didn't go there to teach them how to obtain a better social condition. He didn't go there to to get them off the streets. He didn't come there to bring them out of poverty level. He didn't go there to make Capernaum great again. He didn't do that. Jesus came there to, to bring them into a right relationship with God. Luke nineteen ten tells us, "For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Look now at, at verse ten. I mean, verse seventeen rather. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." I mean, that's the message. Repent. His first message, the same message that John gave when he was baptizing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But I want to point out his method. We read there in verse 17, Jesus began to preach. I like that word preach. It's the word caruso. Uh, Preaching was an important part of the ministry of Jesus, the apostles, the early church. See, understand, teaching is imparting information. Preaching, on the other hand, is imparting information... And urging people to do something with that information. To preach means to proclaim or to publicly declare something, to cry out. No doubt Jesus preached with authority and conviction. So when people heard him, they they listened to what he had to say. I think that the, the word preach has lost much of its meaning in our culture. You know, people hear the word preach and, and it's like they put up a wall. Hey, hey man, don't preach at me, man, you know. Listen, it's something we've all been called to do, to preach the gospel. Benjamin Franklin went out to hear this great preacher of his day, a man named George Whitfield, and a friend said to him, Franklin, why are you going to hear that, that preacher? You don't believe in that nonsense? Franklin replied, no, but Whitfield believes it with his whole heart and his whole soul and his whole mind, and I am prepared to listen to such a man. See, God uses the foolishness of preaching to reach people with the gospel. And again, verse seventeen, the message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message repent. Why? Well, because in order to have fellowship with God, there must be repentance. That's what that was Jesus' message. I think we're all familiar with this term uh repentance and 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 the kingdom. We're, they're familiar terms to the Jewish person as well listening. You know, terms like, you know, to us being saved or being born again, we're, we're familiar with those terms. And the Jewish people at that time, they were familiar with repentance and, and words like, like the kingdom. I think sometimes today, you know, non Christians, you know, they're not some, used to some of the phrases that we use, some of the words that, that, that might sound a little bit bizarre. We'll, we'll ask them, well, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? And uh, what are you talking about? That's gross. But not the word repent. You know, when it comes to the word repent, there's, there's nothing tricky or complicated about its meaning. Repent in the Hebrew simply means to change your mind or change. Uh, or, or change In the Greek language, it means to turn around. It means to change the direction you're going. Now, it doesn't tell you specifically what to turn from, but the implication is to turn from sin. Turn from thinking those old thoughts, living life imposing well. There has to be a change that takes place. Why? will Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is at hand. See, whatever is in your life that may be keeping you from turning towards the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, then it's that which you need to turn from. And the message is simple, and the, the message is urgent. Repent. We know Herod didn't repent. His conscience grew harder and harder, and his life kept going downhill until he eventually faced the responsibility and consequences of his own sin. But let me tell you, the other side of that, you repent, you come to Christ, and, and, and you'll just be amazed at what God will do in your life. Now, you'll also be amazed at some of the reactions you'll get. You know, I, I think sometimes the, the world, they don't think it, it's weird, you know, that, that, that a guy wrecks their body or, or destroys their homes or ruins their lives by running, running from one sin to another. But, but let, a, let a drunk become sober. Or let, let a, a moral person become pure, and the family thinks he's lost his mind. What's wrong with you? You know this fad going through. No, it's God working in your life. God does great things; He produces great changes. Then this brings us to our third point: the agents, the ones that God uses. We're going to see Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Look at verses eighteen through twenty-two. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother in the boat, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Found a story, maybe you've heard this before. It's a make-believe letter written to Jesus, and it goes like this. To Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter, carpenter, shop, Nazareth from Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Listen, these guys that Jesus chose were not the top graduates from Jerusalem Seminary. They were simple men who fished for a living which really brings alive the verse that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, and 27 that says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful or wealthy when God called you, and said God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise, and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. See, when Jesus called these first disciples, he didn't tell them to, go to church. He didn't tell them to to read their Bible. He didn't tell them to to go to college or go to seminary. First and foremost, he called them to himself. And yes, we we need to read our Bible. We need to go to church. And perhaps God may want you to go to college and, and seminary. But more importantly, we are to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew that if these guys would hang out with him, they would eventually begin to become more like him. Jesus was on a a divine mission to reach men and women, Jew and Gentile, with the good news of the kingdom, and he chose ordinary people to do an extraordinary task. Why? Because it would be through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, this passage here can confuse some people because as we read through the Gospels, it seems like there's different uh, instances in the Bible that Jesus calls his disciples, and they don't seem to line up with each other, and they're different, and that's for good reason, because they are different. There's actually stages of calling that Jesus did with the disciples, even as he does with us in in many ways in our own lives. You know, we first hear about Jesus, and maybe we don't make that full commitment, and it it kind of works that way. The first time that Jesus called his disciples is recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 1. We're towards the end of the chapter. you Remember that Andrew and John, the writer of the Gospel, are disciples of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist you know, as Jesus appears on the scene, John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, stop following me, because they were, they were John's disciples, go follow Jesus now. And Andrew and John began to interact with Jesus, and they talked with him, and they believed he's the Messiah, and they put their faith in him. And you know the story. Andrew then goes to Peter, his brother, and then now there's three disciples, and then Jesus goes in and finds Philip, and then Philip gets Nathaniel, and so on. That's the first calling. Calling on to to, to, to to who Jesus is. And, and that was a calling to be a Christian, be a follower of Christ. And I believe they they did put their trust in Christ to the best of their ability and understanding at that point. That was a call to believe. But then we come to where we are in Matthew 4 and Jesus is walking along the seashore in a different situation. And these two sets of brothers are both Fishing, they're, they're mending their nets. And we know at least four of them are, are fishermen. Possibly seven were fishermen of the disciples. He calls them once again. Only this time he's calling them to leave their nets. Look at verse 19. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now this is not a, a call to salvation. This is a call to service. He said, all right, boys, you, you put your faith in me. Now it's time to, to, to get out and do something. Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. You will go out and catch men alive. I like, to, I like this word follow here. It's, it's a Greek word, otolotheo. it means to follow as a disciple committed to imitating his teacher. So Jesus is saying, come follow me, leave your fishing business behind and I'll teach you how to do ministry. I'll teach you how to share your faith. I'll teach you how to bring others to Christ. So the Lord, Lord calls Peter, James, John and Andrew and here they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, Let's just think about that for a moment. You know, this, this journey that they're about to embark on. I mean, all they've known to this point is the countryside uh, of the lake there. All they've known is, is casting out their nets and cleaning the fish and selling the fish and, and knowing the friends around the, the lake. That's all they knew. They probably would go to Jerusalem, you know, for a few times for festivals, but that's all they knew. Within a few years, this fisherman named Peter would be standing in Jerusalem Casting out a spiritual net after one of his sermons, 3,000 fish will be caught. 3,000 souls will come into the kingdom. And I'm sure Peter went, Man, am I glad that I left with Jesus that day when he said, Come follow me. This is exciting. Of course, it wasn't always exciting. Peter was martyred for his faith, but I'm sure he was happy to do it for the Lord's sake. Then there's John who's also mentioned. John was a fisherman with his brother James and their dad. They, They had the Zebedee fishing business around the Galilee. They were mending their, their nets, you know, when Jesus called them and they left their boat and their father and immediately followed Jesus. Now, could you picture that scene? Hey, Dad, we're leaving. See ya. We're out of here. Oh, wait a minute. You guys are on the clock. Hey, we got to get done here. No, no, no. We're out of here. We're not going to come over for dinner either. We're, we're, we're gone. Now, James is mentioned. This is James, a brother of John. Now, I, I don't know how you picture these two boys, James and John. You might picture them very meek. I, I don't picture them that way at all. I think they're kind of rowdy guys, you know. I mean, after all, Jesus did give them the nickname Sons of Thunder because of you know, the time they're going through Samaria and, and, and the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus as the Messiah. They really didn't want Jesus there because he's on his way to Jerusalem. Samaritans didn't like Jerusalem. So James and John suggested Jesus they call fire down from heaven and destroy all the Samaritans. I think they're asking permission. Lord, could you give us the power to nuke them? Let's, let's get them. So I don't picture these guys as a and mild. I picture them as belonging to a New Testament motorcycle gang. Oh, okay, you know. Their robes were probably black leather, all right? And they had the chains hanging down their side and tough kids on the block. But now they have a chance to change everything. And they followed Jesus and they changed from the sons of thunder to the sons of wonder, I mean, this wonderful transformation took place. Jesus does a wonderful work in their lives. I mean, think about the Apostle John. His writings are some of the most gracious, beautiful, Christ-exalting words in the entire scriptures. John a changed man because Jesus got a hold of his life. I love it. In the same way, Jesus takes us the way we are. Our personalities are are, are rough and rugged as we are, but then He changes us, and it's a continual process of changing us. And I don't know how far He's gotten on in your life. I know He's got a way to go with me. You know, He'll be working on me till He takes me home. But but a lot of changes have happened nonetheless. and, And so it is with these men. We know that John would one day become a pastor to a church in Ephesus, which is which is in Asia Minor, up in modern day Turkey today. He would leave the lake and go all the way towards one of the principal cities of the Roman Empire and pasture there. And then after that, he gets you know, exiled to an island in the middle of the sea called Patmos. And there, in that prison colony, he's sitting there in the middle of the sea, probably looking back on his life and going, I never thought I would have ended up here. When Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishes of men, I didn't think I'd end up on this island. But there on that island, John would be given a vision of the end times, of, of the kingdom age, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. It was amazing. I'm sure he didn't regret one moment of that. Think about this. What would have happened if John would have sat back in that boat with his brother James and said, You know, thanks for the invite, Jesus. We're just going to stay here. You know, dad's business is going well. He's getting up in age. We'll take the business over. I mean, how tragic that would have been. Now, God would have used somebody else to accomplish his purpose, they would have missed out on the blessing. But they didn't. They, 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 they left their fishing business, followed the Lord, and they knew they were, they were glad they made that choice. I'll let them say, if there's, is there some area of further service and ministry that God may be calling you to this morning? Maybe there's an area you want you to step out of. Maybe a home Bible study. Maybe it's children's ministry. Maybe it's a security ministry or the usher ministry or some other ministry God has laid in your heart you want to start. Maybe it's becoming a missionary to a distant land and God's been been laid it on your heart and you're going, I don't know, I don't know. Listen, if it's a prompting of the Lord, listen to that, surrender to that, see what the Lord will do. So Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John and in verse 23 we see their schooling began. Look at verse 23. We read, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. We would do well to take special notice of the order of Jesus' ministry. Teaching first, then preaching, and then healing. Teaching is simply, we've talked about this already, laying down principles and precepts. Preaching is stimulating and proclaiming. Healing is the manifestation, the outworking of those first two things. See, Jesus was interested in people and their restoration and total wholeness. I think that's why many healing ministries are so out of balance, because... They've not had that teaching as their foundation. But if Jesus' is their example is teaching, preaching, then, then comes the healing. When Jesus taught, he taught scripture. In fact, the word for teaching in verse 23 is a Greek word, didasco from which we get the word dictation from. It refers to passing on information. It means to explain or expound on a thing, to teach one something. And teaching focuses on the content of truth. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. The the teaching in the synagogues was expositional teaching. They kept reading, you know, they'd read Scripture out loud and then explain section by section. We have it verses, now verse by verse. So this is what Jesus is doing, we read. But he was also preaching the kingdom. Remember, preaching means to cry out. It's imparting information and urging people to do something with that information. See, the gospel is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus never allowed himself to be sidetracked by social issues, political or or economical issues, or even personal disputes of that time. So easy to get caught up in those things today, especially when we see such a battle going on between liberals and conservatives in our country. Now that may, may bother you if you think that a relationship with God is primarily political, economic, or social. See, Jesus is focusing and teaching, teaching and preaching, focused on the people repenting of their sins, preparing them for the kingdom of God. And this brings us to our final point, the result. What's the result of all this? Look at verses 24 and 25. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. According to Josephus, there are about 200 villages with an average of about 15,000 people. The the towns named here cover a 100-mile circle. So that makes the population of Galilee, according to Josephus, around 3 million people at the time of Jesus. But we read that, that people would walk hundreds of miles to see Jesus you know, some of you here this morning may drive great distances to come to church. I think we're tempted to complain, but you've got to look at that verse. I mean, it says in verse 25 Great multitudes followed him. See, that's the result of teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, I think what excited the people, obviously, the crowds, no doubt, was the, the healing miracles. I understand that. I mean, if you have a friend who's been born blind and, and now they suddenly can see and they're walking down the street, I mean, it would blow you away. Someone who's been paralyzed and they can't walk suddenly, they're walking down the street, that would get your attention. Now, let me say this. These were bona fide healings. These were the real, the real deal. It's not like, oh yeah, my friend had a cold last week and now he's healed or had a sore throat and a touch of the flu, and now he's healed. No, these were incurable diseases, radical uh, 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 things that were going on that, that Jesus made them whole. And that got a lot of people's attention. It's no wonder it says a great multitudes followed him. But what really got their attention, I want to point out, are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, every Jewish person at that time would know exactly what the kingdom of heaven in their mind, what, what that was talking about. They would take them right back to Isaiah chapter 11. They would take them to Isaiah chapter 35. See, that is th- those are prophecies concerning the, the messianic kingdom age prophecies. So they're naturally thinking the kingdom is upon us now. We call this the millennial reign of Christ. We know that the millennium from the New Testament Speaks of that thousand years when, when Christ will rule and reign on this earth after the great tribulation period, but to the disciples and to the Jewish audience back then, when, when Jesus preached the kingdom and authenticated it with the healings and the miracles that they did, they thought this is it. We're going to enter into the messianic, messianic era, marked with freedom from disease, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more sickness, no 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 death. Now, all of these things still we were promised and they're going to come, but they thought it was here and now. And as a result, many followed the Lord. But what they needed to realize and they would come to realize was that Jesus came to die on the cross for mankind. Jesus came to take away the sins of the world by taking the penalty for this, of our sins from the world. See, before the millennium comes the cross. Christ would have to die and rise again from the dead for, to provide eternal life for all those who believe. Listen, and he's still calling men and women, to himself today. Notice back in verse 19. Again, Jesus does the calling. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Isn't that a good thing? He's calling us to partner in his ministry. He he called his disciples to himself. Jesus said this in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Listen, If you don't know Christ this morning, he is calling you this morning. He's calling you to come to him, have your sin forgiven, be born again today. If you do know Christ this morning, he's calling us to go and bear fruit. He's calling us to be fishers of men. That fruit involves evangelism. It involves leading people to Christ. Sadly, most Christians never reproduce themselves, even though God has commanded us to make disciples. I read that some researchers tell us that as many as 95% of all Christians have never led another person to the Lord. And I don't think that it's because people are trying and failing. I would think that many of them are never ever dropping their lines in the water. You know, it's like having this this tricked out fishing pole, you know, and it's got the ultimate reel and, and all the proper lures and all the equipment. You've got everything all sitting there and, and you go to the dock and you just sit there. And you never drop the line in the water and you wonder, I don't know why I don't catch any fish. Cast the net out. Cast the, the reel out. See what happens. You know, you got to make an effort. I want to close with this this morning. Jesus called his, his disciples to be fishers of men. That's what he's called all of us to do. And, and one of the reasons I'm actually here is a calling that God has placed on my life some 19 and a half years ago, to, to, to leave Southern California, move to Springfield, and, and let out the net, so to speak. You know, When our fi- family came here, we didn't know what to expect. We, you know, we didn't, didn't know anybody. You know, I mean, we, we, were, we were greeted by wonderful Christian brothers and sisters. But, but we looked at this little yellow church on the corner, and thought, man, this is a great fishing hole. This is a great, great place to stop and see what God can do. And we've watched many people come to faith in Christ over the years. We've watched many people grow in faith over the years. God has done a great work. But you know, if you're a true fisherman or a fisherwoman, you're always looking for that best spot where fish really are biting. And we've been hanging out here for a a good while. It's been a great spot. But I want to share with you, it's time to find another fishing hole. One where there might be a, a little more fish that might be hungry. One where we might not catch only one fish, but maybe a whole school of fish. No, I'm not leaving. We all are. You see, many of you know that that a year ago we purchased some property at 500 North National Avenue, just south of Chestnut Expressway, here in Springfield. Formerly known as the Saco Petroleum uh, Building, it's it's you know in a spot much like Capernaum. It's a little closer to downtown, but but to keep the fish illustration going a little bit, it's certainly closer to some. Schools of fish. I mean, you got MSU and you got OTC and you got Evangel and you got Drury. Down a little further. So we, as the leadership of the church, have decided that we're going to drop our fishing net over there. Now, if you happen to drive by the property right now, you're going to be gone. Really, Pastor? is that you think it's a good idea? I mean, have you really prayed about it? And that's kind of why I haven't really said anything yet until this point. I wanted to wait until we had an artist rendition of the place of what it's going to look like. So you can say okay, that, that, that's going to be kind of cool okay so so um, but we got that in and, and so I, I got some pictures of it. They came out darker than I hoped they would. I just got them from my architect and put them on on the screen, so it's kind of hard to see but but let me, let's have Jacob show you some of these pictures so that's kind of what the property looks like right right now while well, we've we've done some work for it that uh, if you can see where the trucks are up at the top of the building, that's our property as well that's going to be parking. There's a place where there's gas pumps there in the center section there. That's already gone when we purchased the building. Those five tanks that there in that containment area in the bottom right hand side, those were still there when we purchased the building. We, God did some amazing things to get rid of those. Let's go to the next picture. This is looking south at the, the south building. This is going to be our children's ministry. And, and, uh, trust me when I show you the next, the good picture here, you'll go okay. But that's going to be the children's ministry. It's about, there's a, a we'll go back, well, well, go back a second. It's got a um, uh, full basement in there, plus it, the whole children's ministry. So it's about 7,000 square feet that we're going to have. Downstairs, we got about 3,000 square feet, and we are cramped downstairs with the children's ministry. So this is going to be really kind of cool. Next step is the, this right here. Now that's going to be our coffee house and patio. Doesn't that look nice? <laughs> Why don't you hang out there and just enjoy some uh, coffee and patio? It's, it's going to look cool. So we keep going. Next one. That's gonna be the sanctuary, and so we're gonna have a <laughs> lovely like, garage door drive-through. you a Drive in one to hear a message, just drive out the other side. It's gonna be great. You know, don't even have to leave your car. <laughs> it's gonna be a courtyard in between both buildings. I wanted to throw okay, okay. I wanted to throw this up because this was our work day. We had a work day back in April, and I just had a bunch of guys with, with chainsaws, and man, we had a blast. And we just Guys and chainsaws—I mean, they just mix well—and we cut everything down we could see in sight, including telephone poles. Um, <laughs> now, these are the five tanks that were on the property. Now, when when I, I got a minute, when when we first bought the property, I, I was told, you know, that that it may cost quite a bit of money, like twenty-five thousand dollars, to remove these tanks. now I thought, Lord, I mean, I don't twenty-five thousand, and so. um We prayed about it and prayed about it, and we found a petroleum company that wanted the tanks for free, and so they came and got them. And and so you can see the the next. Well, this is they came. So we had all that cleared away, all that property cleared away. Now, so all the tanks are gone, right there on the right. And then the next one, tanks are being hauled away. And then next one, more tanks are being hauled away. And then one more, even more tanks are being hauled away. (laughs) So they, they all got hauled away, and so this brings us to the next slide. We did some demolition. Uh This was kind of a—I a, confess—it was a kind of a, a selfish thing. I wanted some father-son time together, so I took me and my two boys and hard hats and sledgehammers, and and we had just a blast just demolishing the inside, and it was actually really, really fun. <laughs> now the artist rendition. This is what. It's supposed to look like. You can stay there for a minute, Jacob. They've got the the center section courtyard area right there. This is national on the, on the left here. Parking lot in the back. The, uh, uh, we're gonna put a little, uh, uh, bathrooms. We're gonna add an addition where bathrooms, uh, in the foyer there. You can see where that little square thing looks like a tower. come in and then, uh, then we're gonna have, uh, awnings cover a walkway across and you can go to the next one now. This is looking at it from National Avenue. It's kind of squished because of the way the picture is. It'll be more spread out. But uh, we're going to close off the entrance there, uh, make that a courtyard. We can do outside baptism. We can do outside concerts there. It's going to be pretty cool right there. The next one. Looking, that's looking at it from the back. Uh, you can see we got a little fenced in. you got to go through the foyer to get to the courtyard. So between services... You know, the kids, after services, rather, the kids can come in that courtyard. You don't have to worry about them going into the parking lot or going on a national, you know, that's all safely. And uh, what's going on with my mic? That's a little bit a darker view. that didn't come out as clear. And then the next one. And so uh, kind of cool just the way it looks from the back, kind of all cleaned up. That one right there, the, that room on the left, We had the outside tanks, had five outside tanks, and in this room on the left there, um, we had three inside tanks. And so that room is just one huge, tall ceiling of a building there. And so uh, we had those tanks removed, but the the concrete saddles are still there. And so my son Joey said, hey, why don't we make that a coffee house and we'll build a, a little upstairs thing right so we're going to call it the upper room coffee and hopefully get the, the the kids from the the colleges to come and hang out there and stuff and what i thought was really funny is uh jonathan he's, he's a friend of mine he's an architect he, he built that and and it almost looks like he purposely put joey and his fiance natalie standing there in front of the coffee house yeah, i'm thinking okay that kind of looks like you guys standing there a little bit it does doesn't it just a little bit you know the next one and that's the floor plan of everything. You can kind of see um, the bottom building is the the floor plan of the children's ministry offices, sanctuary there, and then the top right is just the layout of the whole thing. And all that is is on the back foyer and the wall there in the in the in the sanctuary. So all those pictures are there. So if you wanna wanna um, take a look at it closer, then you can do that. So when are we gonna move in? Well, I mean, it's kind of up to the Lord with that. We've had some environmental issues that that were on it because it was a petroleum petroleum property. We're waiting for what's called a no further action certificate, which should be done by the end of uh, December of this year. And so in order to get financing, we have to have that letter. So we're kind of doing everything we can before that happens, what we can do, you know, clean up work days, you know, whatever we can to get it done. And so then uh, by the beginning of the year, we can start right away. Um, I have our architect, he's working on actual construction plans right now, you know, to get all that going in that, and so um, uh, we, the plan is to, to sell this building, uh, which is, I'd rather keep it and have two campuses, that, that would be really cool, but but the plan is to sell this building to keep the cost down and, and then finance the, the, the building over there. Uh, that building is paid for, this building is paid for, God is blessed with, with that, and that's just amazing all glory to him for that uh, just very cool to not be in any debt whatsoever and that's just awesome it's just god does it and so you know we're just praying and asking you guys to pray for it see what god can do see you know i want to throw our net up there see what fish we can catch over there now we don't do you know we're not we don't do capital campaigns you're not going to see a thermometer on the wall with the little red thing going up and we're this much money this week you know we don't do that you know it's not who we are we believe where god guides god provides and I just ask you to pray. And we'll just keep you informed of what God does, like those getting those tanks removed. Oh, you know, it's going to be $25,000. Yeah, but I serve a big God. It's for free. They're gone. You know? Who else? I mean, we're not in a hurry. I mean, God has blessed us here, and, and it's good. And so we'll just wait and see what God's going to do. But I wanted to catch you up on that. And, and I just thought, you know what? It's just perfect study to tie into that. And, and listen, as we close this morning... I want to cast the net out one more time. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, man, there's no greater life than to have your sin forgiven and to be born again. And so if you want that, as soon as service is over, elders will be up front. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this church, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, and... and uh, Lord, sometimes we don't see it early on, like with James and John and Peter and Andrew. Lord, as you called them to follow you, Lord, they didn't know what they had in store, but what a blessing it was for them. And what a blessing it's been for us, Lord. And Lord, help us to to continue to take those steps of faith. Lord, stepping out in maybe areas of ministry that that we've never stepped before and going, okay, Lord, give it the shot and see what you'll do, Lord. We know that you have great plans for us. And finally, Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart to you, they're not born again. Lord, did you especially touch their heart? They would not leave here without making that commitment. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand.